All right. Amen and amen. Thank you very much. If you would this morning, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I don't know about you, but there are so many different things going on in our country and in our world and so many frustrations with various things. Uh, It seems like there's all kinds of chaos going on, the rise of lawlessness, um, the rise of authoritarianism, the rise of division because of identity politics and things like that. And it's very tempting to simply respond to these things just like everyone else is responding to these things. And the question is whether or not um, that's really what we ought to be doing, right? Is to ask ourselves, um, is how I'm responding to the chaos how God wants me to respond to the chaos? And so I'm hoping that as we go through this chapter, 1 Corinthians 3, we'll be reminded of the fact that even though as people in the same country, believers and unbelievers, we share common frustrations, common concerns, and yet as Christians, we're to have an uncommon response to these things. And so the the emphasis that I want to um, highlight this morning from this chapter is it matters how we cultivate and build our lives and what wisdom we follow in the process. And what Paul says in this chapter helps us to think about how we're responding to life and what wisdom we're using in uh, pursuing life in this world. Well, a lot of people will read this chapter, and um, Paul talks about the importance of how we invest our lives in terms of farming and in terms of building. And a lot of people will uh, highlight the fact that the children's story, The Three Little Pigs, is one of those stories that uh, is seemingly a fitting story to talk about in light of what Paul says here, because the story of The Three Little Pigs is very much about building, right? If you recall the story, three little pigs are sent out by their mother from their home, and she tells them, be careful of the big bad wolf, make sure you... Build your house strong. And the first little pig builds his house out of straw. uh, And the big bad wolf comes along and says, little pig, little pig, let me in. And little pig says, not by the hair of my chinny chin chin. And and he says, well, then I'll huff and I'll puff and I'll blow your house down. And that's exactly what he does. And depending on the version of the story, in some versions, the pig uh, doesn't survive the incident. And other versions of the story, the pig survives and runs off to his brother's house. And so the second little pig uh, builds his house out of sticks. And the big bad wolf comes along and says the same thing. And the little pig says the same thing. And, and he huffs and he puffs and he blows that house of sticks down. And either the pig goes to his demise or, he go, or the both of them go to the third pig's house. And then that third pig has built his house out of bricks. And so the same thing transpires and the wolf huffs and puffs and he can't blow the house down. And the story goes on. There's actually more to the story uh, where the wolf tries to catch the pig outside the house. 
But the point of the story ultimately is that it makes a difference what you build your house out of. And ultimately, it's a picture of life, that our life is like the building of a house. And it matters what materials you use, and it matters what kind of work you put into it. And so as we look at 1 Corinthians 3, we can keep that kind of very simple illustration in mind, because Paul is going to use a similar illustration in talking about um, our lives. But you notice I've titled uh, this message, Mere Christianity. And if any of you have read things by C.S. Lewis, you know he wrote a book called Mere Christianity. Now, when he used that title, he was talking about the fact that during World War II, he was going to do some radio broadcasts, which turned into the book, Mere Christianity, where he was just going to talk about the essentials of the Christian life or very common truths that... uh, were understood by Christians in all kinds of Christian traditions. Well, Paul talks about, in a sense, mere Christianity, but in a different sense. He's not talking about uh, Christians having common things uh, or common truths that they hold to. But if you look at verses um, 3 and 4 of this chapter, in my version, uh, twice it says, mere men. Verse 3 says, For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly, and are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? That's where I'm getting the title from. The idea that Paul is highlighting that these Christians are acting like mere men. So there's a sense in which he's talking about a mere Christianity, a Christianity that looks like mere men. There are other ways that phrase is translated in other um, translations. ESV says behaving only in a human way in verse 4, or the Holman Christian Standard Bible says living like unbelievers. Another one says behaving like unregenerate people. Um, NIV says uh, like mere humans. And so the idea there is that Paul is talking about the fact that even as Christians, we can be dominated by a very worldly perspective on life. We can live our lives and respond to life as if we haven't been regenerated, as if we aren't Christians. We can just simply go along with what the world says and what the world does and how the world responds to things. The word mere is the idea of no more than or no better than. To be a mere Human is to be no better than other humans, no different than other humans. That's Paul's point in this chapter is that he's dealing with a church that has a lot of problems, but they're Christians. And there are a lot of good things about this church. He highlights, but he says there are a lot of problems here. And at the heart of this is the fact that you've embraced a worldly kind of view on things and you're acting like mere Men, people who haven't been born again, you're not acting like Christians. You should be better in your response to each other. And and so he wants to encourage them in this chapter to realize that. Sometimes we don't even realize it when we're just living like we're not even Christians. And so he's highlighting that for these believers 
in this chapter. Now, the reality is all of us do that to one degree or another because none of us are perfect. So all of us, to one degree or another, are living like we're not Christians. At times, we're not thinking like Christians. At times, we're not acting like Christians. So all of us, to one degree or another, are manifesting this kind of mere Christianity. Um, But he's talking about a condition where this is the dominant characteristic of these believers. It's not just something that happens um, occasionally, but this is where they've pretty much embraced it. And he's challenging them in light of the reality of the gospel to to realize that and to uh, look to God for what they need so that they can love God and love others more as they should. I don't know about your experience in the church, but I grew up in the church. I've had a lot of experience in the church, and I've seen some pretty wild things or heard about some pretty wild things as well. There's one story of a church uh, that I heard about in a church that I went to where there was a deacons meeting, and one of the leading deacons got upset at the minister of music and during the meeting got up and grabbed that minister of music by the throat and pinned him up against the wall. Paul would say, you're acting like a mere man. There's another story um, of a pastor who pastored before I did at the little church I pastored at in Louisiana, who after the Sunday morning worship service went outside and got into a fist fight with one of the members. That's what Paul would call mere Christianity. You're just acting like the world. Or there's another pastor that I know of who trumped up some charges with regard to a pastor on his staff just to get him fired. Mere Christianity. Christians acting like they're not Christians. Um, Thinking about life and pursuing life just like we see in the world. And so Paul is challenging the believers here and obviously all of us to ask ourselves, are there ways in which I'm thinking like the world? Are there ways in which I'm responding like the world's responding and not responding in light of what the Bible says, not responding in light of what Christ calls me to think and and live? So I'd like to just walk us through uh, this chapter um, in light of these things and, and to seek some encouragement because all of us, want to love better, don't we? We, we want, if, if we're Christians, that we want to love, and we want to love better, and we want to love like Christ loves. And sometimes we don't even realize either that we're not loving like Christ, or we don't even realize what's feeding into our lack of loving like Christ, because we all fall short to some degree. And so I think as we walk through this, maybe God will help us see some things and Help us as we seek to grow in our love for the people in our lives because all of us need to grow in various ways. And so if you look, first of all, just at the first um, three verses, Paul says in verse 1 of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food. For you are not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. So as Paul talks about the idea of acting like mere men or being mere Christians in a sense, he's talking about Christians who think and live like non-Christians 
in significant ways and are immature Christians at best. You notice that he says, I could not talk to you as spiritual men, as men who are thinking about how to trust God and how to love like God loves in their lives. But rather, in very significant ways, they're living like baby Christians. So he didn't say you're not a Christian. He didn't say you guys aren't even believers. He's saying you're you're responding to what's going on as if you're infants in Christ, babies in Christ. Obviously, when someone just comes to Christ, just believes in Christ, there's, there's a lot of stuff that they don't know. There's a lot of things in their lives that have to be dealt with. There's a lot of wrong responses because they haven't grown. And so he's talking to these Christians and he's saying, you know, by now you shouldn't be babies. You should be further along than you are. And so he's challenging them to realize that, to think about that, and in a sense to stop being babies in your response to what has taken place. Um, And it's helpful if you realize that he's talking especially in light of love. If you read the book of 1 Corinthians, several times he'll make statements like these. In 1 Corinthians 13, he says, But now faith, hope, love, abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. So he's going to argue that the most important thing in life is that we love like God loves. In 1 Corinthians 14.1, he says, Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts. So he says what you should be pursuing, even though you love spiritual gifts and you want spiritual gifts and they're important in their own right, you should be pursuing love no matter what. And then he says in 1 Corinthians 16, Let all that you do be done in love. So when you read 1 Corinthians 3, you need to read it through the lens of Paul is ultimately calling them to do everything in love, to love like God calls you to love. And so he's highlighting things that are hindering them from loving. And it's their childish thinking that is hindering them from loving. He says in 1 Corinthians 14, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants. But in your thinking, be mature. So he's highlighting the fact that they're thinking like babies, so to speak, spiritually. And they need to mature in that. In Hebrews 5, it says, But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So what does that mean? What does it mean to be mature? It means you have embraced the reality that I need to live my life to the glory of God And I do that by evaluating everything based on what the Bible says. And I seek to be discerning. In what ways or about what? How am I to trust God in this situation? And how am I to love people in this situation? To me, that's just the bottom line. There's a lot more you can say about that. But it's basically, if I'm living maturely, I'm going to be thinking, okay, in light of what God has told me in the Bible, how am I to trust him in these circumstances and how am I to love these people in, the, in this situation? It's about trust and it's about love. It's about applying the word of God and seeking to exercise discernment in that way. And he's saying babies are very self-centered. They're not thinking about other people. They're just thinking about their own needs. They're not evaluating how can I lay down my life for someone else and love them. No, they're just thinking about, what do I need? I need another bottle, or I need 
to be changed or whatever. And he says, be careful of falling into that very worldly way of thinking because that's the way we think naturally. That's the way we live our lives. He goes on in verses 3, the rest of verse 3 and 4, and he says, For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly, and are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? We can see in this that mere Christians are unashamedly selfish and demanding like little children. He highlights the whole idea of jealousy and strife. The word jealousy is the idea of, I want what you've got. You've got two kids playing, and one child gets a toy, and the other child wants the toy that the other child has. Didn't want it until the other child got it, but now, okay, now I want your toy. The jealousy is, you have that, I want that. And then the idea of strife is, and I'm going to do what I have to do to get it. If I have to bonk you on the head, then I bonk you on the head to get that toy. The jealousy and strife is what he's picturing there for us. And so there's no doubt that children can be unashamedly selfish. And that's what he's saying to the Corinthians. You guys, you guys don't even care that you're acting obviously selfishly. Now, as we grow up, and become adults, our selfishness is a lot more cloaked and subtle. We don't just go around bopping people in the head and grabbing stuff out of their hands, typically, as adults. Um, but our selfishness is still there. It's not that we have stopped being selfish. But in Christ, we're to grow in seeing that selfishness and fighting that selfishness and not just simply just let it all flow out of us without any fight or any restraint. And he's highlighting the fact that the Christians in this situation aren't even fighting their selfishness. They're just going for it and they're going at each other. And he's calling them on it very, very clearly. James says the same thing in chapter 4 of his book when he says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have. So what do you do? You commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. It's the same thing that Paul's talking about in this passage. James is saying the same thing. You want what you want, and you're willing to do what you have to do to get it. And James will go on to say, don't you realize that the problem is that you've made friends with the world? What does that mean? You've basically said, my hope and my desires will be fulfilled in this world, and therefore I need to do whatever I need to do to get what I want in this world. Because my world, or excuse me, my hope is in this world. And if your hope is in this world, he says, you can't be a friend of God, because those who are friends of God put their hope in God. And so you're fighting because you want what you want, and you're going to do what you have to do to get it, because your hope is in this world. And Paul is saying the same thing in 1 Corinthians 3, is that you've embraced the wisdom of this world and you think that your hope is in this world and therefore everything matters in terms of what you get or don't get in this world. And therefore, um, he's highlighting the fact that you need to do what James says. You need to repent of that and put your hope back in God uh, and not simply walk like mere men. 
It's interesting, uh, there are all kinds of ways the Bible talks about how we can express this kind of attitude of jealousy and strife and this kind of um, embracing the world's perspective. The Lord Jesus talks about it when he says things like, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? So on the one hand, Paul could say, when you say, I want what I want, I'm going to do what I have to do to get it, that's a worldly kind of view. Jesus is saying, um, when you say, I'm going to treat other people like they treat me. Jesus says that's a worldly kind of approach. We might even, not even say it, we just do it. You know, if they, they're treating me a certain way, then I, then I treat them a certain way. If they shut down toward me, I shut down toward them. If they speak to me this way, I speak to them that way. And Jesus says, how are you different than the world around you if you embrace that? He says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you for even sinners, meaning mere men, like Paul is saying. Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners or even mere men, natural men, people who aren't even born again, lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. So what Jesus says is, don't embrace the same tactic of the world from which you've been saved. You've been saved out of the world. You've been changed. And so therefore, you're to be perfect like your heavenly father is perfect. You're to be kind to ungrateful and evil men, just like your father is kind to ungrateful and evil men. You may remember the story where Jesus is traveling through Samaria. They go to one of the villages in Samaria and they ask if Jesus can stay and they refuse him the opportunity to stay in the village. And so James and John, the sons of thunder, say, Lord, you want us to call down fire from heaven, just like Elijah did in the Old Testament, and burn them up? And according to um, some of the manuscripts, not everyone believes this is original, but many believe this is the essence of Jesus' rebuke. He said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. So, If I simply treat people like they treat me, or if I simply am quick to condemn people, I do not know what spirit I am of. I have forgotten what spirit I am of. I've lost sight of who I am. And that's what Paul is telling these Christians in Corinth. You've lost sight of it. In verses 5 through 7, he says, What then is Apollos, and what is Paul, servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted Apollos water, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters has anything but God who causes the growth. One of the big issues in Corinth at that time was basically um, the issue of celebrity pastors. You know, I like, I like this guy, you know, Piper's my man or Tim Keller's my man or... John MacArthur's my man, or, or whatever. In that day and time, it was Peter, or it was um, Apollos, or it was Paul. Or, and so you've got these factions where people are saying, you know, you know, he's my man, he's my man. And the fruit of that was, uh, because he's not your man, then we're at odds. And this whole spirit of division and 
and that sort of thing. And, and Paul is saying, um, you know, you've got your whole perspective is um, fixated on the tools rather than the producer. Uh, who's really producing life? Who's the one that's really making the difference in your lives? Is it Paul? Is it Peter? Is it Apollos? He says, no. He says, we're just tools. God is the one who's causing the growth. We're servants through whom you believed. We're just instruments in God's hands. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. God is the one who should be getting the glory. God is the one you should have your allegiance to, and that should unify you rather than divide you. It goes along the same line as what we see in Isaiah 10, where God is talking about uh, bringing judgment on the king of Assyria. And he says, I'm going to bring judgment on the king of Assyria because he thinks he's the one doing all the things that he's doing. And so the Lord says, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness. For he, the king of Assyria, has said, by the power of my hand and by my wisdom, I did this. Then the Lord goes on to say, let me give you a picture of what that really implies, what's really going on there. He says, it's like this, is the axe to boast itself over the one who chops with it? Is the saw to exalt itself over the one who wields it? That would be like a club wielding those who lift it, or like a rod lifting him who is not wood. Saying if you're a carpenter and and your, your uh, hammer stood up one day and said, don't you see how wonderful I am? I just built this house. You say, what are you talking about? You couldn't do nothing unless I picked you up and used you. That's exactly what God is saying here. The, the king of Assyria thinks he's something when he's not. He thinks he's much greater than an instrument in the hand of God, like an axe boasting or a saw or a club or a rod boasting as if they can do anything apart from the one who wields it and so Paul is saying you know part of the problem is it's not that you shouldn't appreciate people we should appreciate what people do for us we should be very thankful because we don't deserve anything that anybody does for us number one number two we should appreciate it because we should God teaches us to appreciate the instruments that he uses in our lives. But he he makes it clear we're never to confuse the instrument with the producer, so to speak, the one wielding the instrument. Don't ever make that wrong confusion of things. And Paul is encouraging them uh, to make sure they're not doing that as well. He goes on in verse 8 and he says, Now he who plants and he who waters are one, But each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. And so here he's saying that we can get into a frame of mind as Christians where not only do we put our hope in tools rather than in God, but we also greatly underestimate the need for work and for teamwork. When he says in verse 8, now he who plants and he who waters are one, what he means is both are important. Not that they both do the same thing. They don't do the same thing. But they're both important. Uh, The planter needs the waterer. And the waterer 
needs the planter. You can't say, okay, I don't, I don't want any planting going on. I'm going to do all the watering. Or I, want, I don't need any watering going on. I'm just going to plant. You need people who do different things and exercise different gifts. And he says, each one will receive his own reward or his own wage based on his own labor. And here we have the picture that I referenced earlier with the story of the three little pigs uh, that where God says, you're God's field, God's building. Um, Now the field picture is a field, uh, is a picture of the reality that there needs to be some sowing and reaping that goes on. Ultimately, God is the one who determines whether or not there's anything produced in the field or whether or not there's any building built. But that doesn't mean that the field doesn't have to be worked. It doesn't mean that people don't have to do anything. And so the first thing he highlights is we need to recognize that we do play a role. Apollos and Paul played a role in their lives. Leaders play a role. Preachers and teachers play a role. And individual believers play a role in churches and in in their own growth. And so what we find here is the principle, like Paul says in Galatians 6, the one who has taught the word is to share all good things for the one who teaches him. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will, will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. In the context, the whole issue of sowing and reaping is both in terms of I sow, in terms of what I give my heart to. Because he highlights the ministry of the word. He starts out, by saying the one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. So there's a sense in which I sow in my life in terms of what I give my heart to, what I listen to, what I meditate on and feed on and and listening to the word of God is how I sow to the spirit in my life. But I also sow in my life by doing good to people. That's also a way that I sow, that I... Um, basically plant things and cultivate things in my own heart and in in my own life. And so both of those are very, very important. So that's why we're both to appreciate in very all kinds of ways the ministry of the word to us and embrace it, but we're also to seek to put it into practice. And that's how we plant and, and cultivate the field of our lives. But Paul also uses the idea of building and, um, and we'll go on to that in just a minute. But let me just highlight the fact that he makes the point that um, each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. And one of the things that we have to realize is that there's a sense in which we aren't anything. Let's see, if you notice... Back in verse 7, he says, Neither the one who plants or the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. And yet, verse 8 makes it clear, we are still to labor. And so how do we hold those things in proper tension? Well, one way is to realize that even though we can't make anything happen, 
we are still to work and that God promises to reward our labor graciously. Not because we deserve it, but because he loves to give to us. And he says he will give to us based on our faithfulness. There's a story in Matthew 20 about a landowner who had a vineyard. And so he was hiring people uh, to go work in the vineyard. I don't know if you've ever been to um, Home Depot or other places where if you go there in the morning, you'll see people standing around waiting to be hired. I know you can in Huntington Beach. There are men there in the parking lot of Home Depot waiting to see if they can get hired. And it's the same way in this story. This man hires some people at 6 o'clock in the morning to go work in his vineyard. Then he comes later at 9 o'clock and he hires some more men. Comes later at noon and 3 o'clock and then at 5 o'clock and he hires men at those different times of the day and sends them into his vineyard to work. And then at 6 o'clock when the sun's going down, he says to his uh, servants, uh, bring everybody up. Bring the ones I hired last and pay them first and then pay everybody else. And he says, I want you to give everybody the same thing. Whether they worked all day long for 12 hours or whether they worked only one hour, I want you to give them all a denarius. I want you to give them a day's wage. Now, the people who worked all day long said, that's not fair. And the, the owner responded by saying, didn't I agree with you at 6 o'clock this morning that if you worked today, I'd give you a denarius? And they said, yeah, that's what we agreed on. Am I cheating you? No. So what am I doing? The owner says, I'm being generous. I'm giving all these people uh, the same that I'm giving to you, even though they didn't do what you did. Which is what? It's a picture of grace. It's a picture of generosity. And that's what God does for us. He doesn't give us what we deserve because we don't deserve anything. But he gives us generously. He responds to our labor graciously and rewards us. If we go on to verses 10 and 11, we see where uh, part of the problem um, that we can get into as Christians and living like mere men is that we can lose sight of the importance of the foundation. In verse 10, it says, According to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder or like a, a wise architect, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The believers in Corinth were looking to men and looking to the wisdom of the world for whatever they wanted to accomplish in life. And they had forgotten that the key to all that they long for and desire is Jesus. That Jesus is the foundation for everything. He's the foundation of all that we need and all that we desire. And when you lose sight of that foundation, you begin to get off track in all kinds of ways. You begin to treat people differently because you've begun to look to them to meet your needs or make you happy. And so that's why the Lord Jesus says in John 15, um, he uses the picture of a vine. He says, you are like branches in the vine. And if you abide in the 
The vine, you will produce fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. And so the believers here that Paul is dealing with are those who've lost sight of the gospel in a sense. They've lost sight of the very foundation of their Christian lives. And not only when we talk about Jesus, we're not just talking about Jesus in in some vague way. We're talking about the Jesus of the gospel. And who is the Jesus of the gospel? He's the one who laid down his life for you and me. The Bible says that the Christian life is following Jesus. It's following Christ, which means, Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. So what does love require? Does love require, you know, whatever the world says love is, that's what love requires. Whatever the world says love uh, looks like, that's what love looks like. And Paul and the Bible say, no, that's not what love looks like. The world is defining love in all kinds of ways that the Bible would deny. So what does love look like? Well, the heart of the gospel is that Jesus laid down his life for sinners, for people who don't deserve anything. He laid down his life to love. And therefore, we're called to do that. We're called to remember that the foundation of our lives is that we've embraced Jesus as our Lord and our Savior, and we've given our life to him, and he leads us to lay down our lives for others for their good and the glory of God, just like he laid down his life. You're not going to be dominated and characterized by jealousy and strife if you're laying down your life for someone else. That's what Paul is doing. He's contrasting for them the reality that in Christ, if Christ is your foundation, if you're operating on the basis of the gospel, then don't you see how how you're responding to people and responding to life is not consistent with that. You've lost sight of your foundation. Well, he goes on in verse 12 and he says, Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Here he's talking about the fact that mere Christians orient their lives and build their lives in significant ways on the wisdom of the world. So he highlights the the picture of building, but building with different materials, just like the three little pigs. One built with straw, one built with sticks, one built with bricks. In this case, Paul contrasts the idea of building with gold, silver, precious stones, and wood, hay, and straw. And so what's going on there? What's the wood, hay, and the straw? It's the wisdom of the world. It's that which will not last. It will not stand the fire. Wood, hay, and straw burn up. The picture there is the day of judgment. And the fire is God examining what your life has been about what you've given yourself to and why you've given yourself to it. And he says that those who embrace the wisdom of the world, that which comes natural to how we're supposed to live sinfully in a sinful sense of natural to how we are to live, we end up building our lives with wood, hay, and straw, and 
when the judgment day comes along, it gets blown down. Or the picture that we find in Matthew 7 is when Jesus says, if you build your house on the rock, which is my word, then you'll stand the storm, which is ultimately the judgment day. But if you build your house on the sand, it will not stand the storm. It will not last. And so we see here the idea that in the context, the wood, hay, and the straw is the wisdom of the world. But the gold, silver, and precious stones is the wisdom of God. You live your life based on what God says is wise. Build your life on the gospel and you seek to live out the gospel in your your life. And so what kinds of things does the Bible call us to as Christians? It calls us to be witnesses for Christ in our workplace, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our world, whatever our world looks like. It calls us to be witnesses for Christ. It calls us to live our life in communion with God which means I make it a priority to commune with God publicly in worship, and I make it a priority to commune with God privately in my own prayer time and in my own time in the Word. The Bible calls us to value the church, the community of believers, so that not only do I spend time with believers on Sunday, but that and beyond that, I share my life with other believers in the local church, and I share my gifts with other believers in the local church. The Bible says that I show compassion, which like we prayed about, show compassion to all men, but especially to the lost and to the needy. The Bible talks a lot about how we are to be uh, giving our lives to those kinds of things, and we're to seek to serve well in what you can call common grace roles. Paul talks a lot about being a good husband, good wife, good parents, good child, and by God's grace and for his glory in accordance to what God says, being a good employer, a good employee, uh, being a good neighbor, being a good um, friend. All those things are talked about in the Bible. And so all of these things are basically whatever the Bible calls me to, as a Christian in these various areas of life, those are what you could call gold, silver, and precious stones. But if I live my life simply according to what I want or what the world says I should want, then that's wood, hay, and stubble. And so that's why it's so important that we think about that. Now, I want to highlight something that um, is an interesting thing to me. There was a sermon that John Piper preached a while back that is a famous sermon. It's called, the, some people call it the seashell, seashell Sermon, where he talked about this couple that he read about in Reader's Digest who retired. Um, he read it, I think, in a sermon where Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, playing softball and collecting shells. And the sermon that John Piper preached back in 2000, he preached to like 40,000 college students between 18 and 25 years old. And based on that, he, he read that uh, little clip from the Reader's Digest and he said, he said, that is a tragedy. And he said, don't waste your life. Now since then, people have begun to raise some questions about that illustration 
and basically you say maybe everything John Piper said about that couple and their choices was spot on. Maybe that's the truth. Maybe they were very uh, selfish and worldly and um, ungodly in their choices. Others have raised the question, we really don't know the whole story. We don't know why they retired early. We don't know if there were other things that they were doing in their lives. Um, maybe they retired and went lived in Florida so that they could serve their children and their grandchildren and that they really were Christians who had a heart to love people who also collected shells, who loved people who also played softball, who loved people who also lived in that retirement community. That it's possible that you can collect shells to the glory of God. You can play softball to the glory of God. You can retire to the glory of God and even retire early to the glory of God. I just share that to say that when the Bible calls us to to make sure we're investing our lives and not wasting our lives, wood, hay, and stubble, or wood, hay, and straw, it doesn't doesn't mean that it's going to look the same for all of us in terms of everybody has to go to the mission field or everybody has to become a pastor or everybody has to live the way somebody says they have to live. The issue is whether or not it's my heart to glorify God by trusting him in every situation and by loving people in every situation, whether I'm retired or not, whether I play softball or not, whether I collect shells or not. That's not the issue. There's nothing inherently wrong with those things. The issue is, what is my life really about? What what is my life about? Um, Because there are plenty of us here who have jobs with other people doing the same thing, but we should be radically different in how we look at those jobs because they're unbelievers and we're believers. So doing the same thing doesn't mean we do it the same way or with the same spirit or with the same heart and attitude. And that's what Paul is getting at because so many times we can either by implication or by direct application, we can imply that you have to live a certain way to truly make sure your life isn't wasted in terms of what it looks like. Paul doesn't go so far as to say that. What he says is there should be a difference in how you look at life and what, uh, you, where your heart is in all of this. Are you seeking to do what is right in light of the word of God? Are you seeking to do what is wise, all things considered? And most of all, are you pursuing love? Are you seeking to love people like God loves people in your life? One of the things that's fascinating to me is in 1 Thessalonians 4, He's talking about, uh, in verses 9 through 12, he says, Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands, just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Paul could tell the Thessalonians that, you know what? 
you can glorify God if you will just lead a quiet life, attend to your own business, and work with your hands. He doesn't tell them they have to go halfway around the world. He doesn't tell them they have to uh, be some super Christian in the eyes of other people. He says, no, you just need to have a heart to love like God loves and let it play out in your everyday life appropriately. That's a very simple calling. And sometimes I think we can be oppressed by the idea that, you know, I'm not the super Christian I need to be. And I'm not, you know, out there killing it like I'm supposed to be if I was really a radical Christian. What does it mean to be radical? I trust God and I love people or at least I seek to by God's grace. I seek to trust God in every situation, and I seek to love people as God loves. That's radical. That is radical. People naturally do not trust God. People naturally do not love God, don't love people like God does. That is radical. And that's what Paul is calling the believers here in Corinth to. It's something that's radical, but it's not radical like I have to be doing something that only a few people do. We do something that all Christians are called to do, whatever whatever our circumstances might be. Well, I have to move very quickly just to wrap this up. In verse 14, he says, If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If many, any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. What does that mean? That means... God works all things together for our good, but we can lose. Lose what? Lose reward. That's why Jonathan Edwards could say that one of his resolutions was to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can. We can't lose our salvation as Christians, but if I... If I build my life with wood, hay, and straw, I can lose some reward. That's just what Scripture teaches. God works everything for our good, but it doesn't mean that everyone's going to get the same reward in heaven. And Jonathan Edwards could say, I want to be as happy as I can be in heaven. Therefore, I want to live my life wisely. I want to live my life responsibly. I want to cultivate my field and build my life wisely. In light of that, he goes on in verse 16 and says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. That is a gentle reminder to them that you have to remember that the local body of believers is very precious to God, set apart by God, and that the one who lives his life in such a way that he's destroying the church of God will receive consequences. There will be consequences. Ananias and Sapphira is just one example of that. Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit in the context of the believers, and God judged them on the spot. There's debate about whether or not they were real Christians or not. The Bible doesn't say. But what it does say is, that God takes very seriously what happens in the church. And therefore, we should too. And, and the people, the believers in Corinth, were not doing that. 
they were destroying the body of Christ there in, in the ways that they were uh, in conflict with each other through strife and through jealousy. He goes on, he says in verse 18, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, he is the one, excuse me, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they are useless. The word for foolish there is the word from which we get the word moron. The one who wants to be wise must become like a moron. In what sense? In the eyes of the world. We have to reject what the world says is the path to real happiness and instead follow Christ. And the world says, you guys are crazy. You're giving up all this stuff that you could have in this world for something that will never transpire. You're foolish. That's what the world says. But God says you have to become foolish in order to be wise. Foolish in the eyes of the world. Then the last thing, last verse as it says, verse 21, So then let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world, or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Let no one boast in men. That's what they were doing. And they were looking to the resources they could find in this world for the help they needed and the happiness they longed for. And they didn't realize that all that they need is in God. There's an interesting psalm, Psalm 50, where God says, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. He says, if I was, if I was hungry, I wouldn't uh, ask you for food. God says, I, I own it all. I don't need anything. And so what was the application? He says, call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you and you will honor me. If we look for our resources in people and our resources in the things of this world, we will not call upon God. But if we realize that God has all the resources we need, for the help we need, the happiness we long for, then we will call upon him in the day of trouble. He will rescue us and we will worship him. That's the point of our need is that we might see him help us. So let me just close. Um, Word of encouragement to parents. We are tools, not producers. We cannot produce fruit in our children. Only God can do that. We hinder our love for our children when we try to make fruit happen. That's part of the application, is that not just for parents, for all of us. If we're we're trying to make people into what we want them to be, then we're not going to love them. But if we entrust to God the work that needs to be done in their hearts, then we're free just to love them in whatever way God calls us to. The same way in our marriage, an application is, if Jesus isn't the foundation of our marriage, then conflict will increase. But if I'm looking to Jesus to meet my needs, then I'm free just to love the other person, regardless of how they respond. Otherwise, I'm trying to make them into the kind of spouse that I want them to be. I have to come back to the fact that Jesus 
is my spouse. Jesus is the one who's going to meet my needs. And therefore, I have to be careful of embracing the wisdom of the world, which says, I can make it happen. If I just do it right, if I just work harder, if I just put the right pressure on people or use the right manipulation, I can get them to be what I want them to be. That's the world's perspective. Yes, we have things to do to love people, but it's to love people, not to make things happen. So Paul is calling the Corinthians back to the, the foundations of really trusting in God for what, what needs to happen in our lives and in the lives of other people. And we glorify God as we thank him for what he gives us and as we seek to love other people with what he gives us. Let's pray. Father, so much in this this relatively short chapter that is meant to encourage us to remind us of things that we just lose sight of. The, the believers in Corinth lost sight of these things. And they were thinking in ways that were infantile, childish, immature, and they were responding to life in that way. And all of us are there at different times. And so we need these reminders of what is really true and and where life comes from. And so I just pray that somehow all of us would be encouraged, where we need to be encouraged to look to you, to depend on you, to put our hope in you, and to seek to love people by your grace and for your glory. So I just pray that you'd speak to us in light of where we are this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.